0: Over the past couple weeks, uh, my daughters and I have been watching uh, Poirot, the show, I think it's a BBC adaptation based on the famous Agatha Christie novels, and if you're not familiar with the show, it works like just about any other, you know, detective mystery show you've ever seen, so, you know, the first five minutes, there's a mysterious crime that's committed, Uh, In the next about 40 minutes or so, you spend following around the famous detective, you know, as they gather evidence and clues, as they talk with the suspects and with the witnesses. Uh, But all that really is just to get to the payoff in the last five minutes, when the detective takes all of that information, takes all those little puzzle pieces and puts them all together so they fit. And then the the detective, Poirot, gathers everyone together and he proceeds to explain. Exactly what happened, why it happened, how it happened, and most importantly, right, who done it. And we've enjoyed it. We've really had fun. And I think we've enjoyed it for the same reason that most people enjoy all these shows, which is that it's participatory television, right? Most of the time, you don't know either uh, what has happened or who has done it. And so you're invited. You're, you're supposed to follow around with the detective. You're supposed to walk with Poirot. You should look at the evidence as he looks at the evidence. You listen as the eyewitnesses make their reports. Uh, and you get to try and put these pieces together just like he's doing. And of course, it's always very gratifying if you can manage to figure it out before he does. I share that because it occurred to me this week that Luke is hoping that we as his audience are doing very much the same thing as we read his account of the gospel about Jesus. He wants his audience, as they read the story, as we read the story, to collect the evidence, the clues, uh, the wise teachings of Jesus, his works of great power, the eyewitness testimony, And Luke wants us to gather all those pieces together so that we might answer the great and central questions of his book. Who is Jesus? And what exactly has he accomplished? Uh, In fact, Luke makes this explicit in the first couple verses of his his gospel. Uh, Just in case you've forgotten, he dedicates it to his friend Theophilus. And he says, Theophilus, I have made an ordered account of these events So that you might see for yourself, so that you might put the pieces together for yourself and see that what you have been told about Jesus is, in fact, true. Uh, Today, we're looking at a story from the end of Luke chapter 8, but it's part of a section containing three stories that I think Luke intends for us to encounter together. There are three pieces of evidence that all point in the same direction, So before we dig down into our passage, I want to step back for a second and just get an an overview of the whole section. So if you have your Bible open, uh, you can look starting in chapter 8, verses 22 to 25. Here we'll find that after having wrapped up a session of teaching, uh, Jesus and his disciples decide to get in a boat and head for the other side of the lake. Uh, And so they do. They get in the boat, and as they're crossing the lake, Jesus takes the opportunity to get some much-needed rest, and he falls asleep. But while he's sleeping, a ferocious storm blows up, uh, and it's so ferocious that the disciples panic, and they begin to fear for their lives. And in their panic, they wake Jesus Jesus up, and they say, Lord, get up. You've got to do something, or we're all going to die. So Jesus gets up. And in the midst of the howling wind and waves, he rebukes them and says, be still. And at his word, they still. This causes the disciples, shocked, to start looking around at each other and asking, of course, the main question that drives the whole section. They look at each other and they ask, who is this guy that he can give commands to nature, to the wind and waves, and they will obey him. Who indeed? Well, we get a second clue to help us answer that question in the next story. Because having crossed the lake successfully, they get out of the boat on the other side, and it's not very long until they encounter a man possessed by demons, possessed, we're told, by a legion of demons. And as soon as he spots Jesus, The man cries out in terror. What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Please don't torture me. Already, that's kind of an odd beginning to the interaction. I mean, you know, who is this guy that these demons are afraid of him? But it gets stranger still. Because as it proceeds, they ask Jesus for permission they say, when you cast us out, please let us go into those pigs over there instead of sending us back to the, to the abyss. We beg you. And Jesus says, okay, go for it. And immediately, the man who they had tormented for so long was completely restored. The demons were gone, never to return. It has to be the most boring exorcism of all time, Right? I mean, just think about it. There's no tension, right? There's no drama, no contest of wills. The demons are running scared from the moment they spot him. It's boring, but maybe because of that, it's the most impressive one you'll ever see. Uh, This, again, leaves those who witness it in awe. I mean, they're both amazed and, frankly, they're a little bit afraid, As they start asking themselves, what kind of person is this that demons not only obey him, they they fear him? They fear him. I mean, the day is not yet over, but already Jesus has demonstrated his dominion over nature and his dominion over the powers of evil. And so, the question for the disciples and for all these people who have witnessed it is what does this mean? Uh, what category do they put Jesus in? I mean, there's a lot of great teachers out there, but there aren't many who can give orders to the wind and expect to be obeyed. And, you know, there were great prophets in the days of old, prophets who did mighty things. But were any of them, did, they, did any of them inspire fear and demons and the powers of evil? Who is Jesus that he can well, that brings us now to our third story, our third piece of evidence, which is really two stories woven together. And by now, I think we can see pretty clearly what Jesus or what Luke is doing. You see, Luke's not just writing a random travel log. He is ordering these stories to build a case about the scope, uh, the scope of Jesus' dominion and power to demonstrate that Jesus is, in fact, Israel's Messiah, and the Son of God. He's already put forward two compelling pieces of evidence, Jesus' dominion over nature and his dominion over demons. But to those, he will now add a third, Jesus' dominion over illness and death. Uh, So turn with me now to Luke 8, verses 40 to 56. But instead of reading this, uh, I want to try a little something different. I'd like to retell this story for you this morning. All right. So if you remember, we left Jesus and his disciples on the far side of the lake. They had just uh, Jesus had cast out these demons, and and it had left the villagers a little bit shaken. And so they suggested to Jesus that maybe he might like to go back over to the other side. And so they do. They get back on the boat and they cross this time uneventfully back to the shore where they started. But as soon as they get within sight of shore, it becomes obvious to them that the crowds in Jesus' absence have not dispersed, they have grown. They've grown larger, and they return to a tremendous press of humanity, so much so that it's a struggle even to get out of the boat and onto dry land. Uh, But they do, and as they're slowly making their way through the crowd, they notice that there's one guy making his way determinedly toward them. And eventually, he gets to the spot, uh, the little bubble of space around Jesus, and he immediately throws himself on the ground. He prostrates himself before Jesus. And with tears streaming down his cheeks, he says, Jesus, I beg you, you have to help me. My daughter is dying, and you are the only one who can help her, the only one who can heal her. Please, I beg you, Come to my house and heal her. But the moment he had thrown himself on the ground, murmuring breaks out all through the crowd because every single person there recognized him. That is Jairus, head of the local synagogue, a man of some means, of status, of dignity, and everyone was a little taken aback To see how he had just thrown himself on the ground, laid in the dirt before Jesus. But Jesus, as they chattered amongst themselves, had knelt down before Jairus and said, I am willing. Take me to your daughter. Let's go. And so they got up and they they left immediately for Jairus' house. But their progress was slow. Because the crowds were still there, still pressing in upon Jesus. Everyone wanted to get near to him, and so they were forced to fight for every step. The disciples are pushing to keep people back. And Jairus can feel uh, the, the panic rising in him, like you do when you're stuck in a traffic jam, right? Pre COVID. He's panicked. He's desperate to get back to his house, but no matter what he does, they can't seem to get going any faster. And Jarius thinks, what's wrong with these people? Didn't they hear me? Don't they understand that my situation is desperate? But it turns out, he was not the only desperate person in the crowd. As he and Jesus slowly made their way towards his house, there was a woman slowly making her way toward Jesus. This woman, for 12 years, had been subject to a bleeding illness. Every single day, for 12 years, she had woken up hoping and praying that this was the day that the bleeding would stop. And every day, for 12 years, she had been disappointed. Every day, that disappointment had turned slowly but surely into fear, as she wondered now if today was the day the bleeding got worse, if today was the day it turned into something bigger, something life-threatening. And added to the disappointment, added to the fear and compounding both was the crushing loneliness and alienation because her bleeding had made her ritually impure, unclean. And what that meant quite simply, was that for 12 years, she had been deemed unfit for polite company, unfit even for worship, and meant that every day for 12 years, every single person she came into contact with was defiled by her. It was a crushing burden to bear. But then, one day, she began to hear people in her town talk about a guy named Jesus and that he was going all around proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven was near. And in accordance with his message, he had gone around proclaiming the forgiveness of sins and healing all kinds of people. And for reasons she herself couldn't quite explain, the more she heard about him, the more and more her hope began to grow until she was convinced that Jesus alone could help her. He alone could heal her. And so when she heard that he was going to be in Galilee, she knew she had to do anything and everything she could to get to Jesus, to find him. As it turned out, finding him was very easy. You had to just look for where the whole crowd of people was gathered at any one time, and you could be pretty sure Jesus would be right there in the middle. Finding him was easy, getting to him was much harder. But she was determined. She was desperate. And so, as Jesus and Jairus are heading to Jairus' house, she was slowly and methodically working her way toward Jesus until she was so close, she thought if she could just stretch out, just reach out her hand, she might be able to touch his robe. And as he walked by, she was able to touch it just for a second. But immediately, the bleeding stopped. And she, she just knew she was healed. It was over. But then something unexpected happened. Jesus also stopped. And he looked around and he said, Who touched me? And, and shocked, overjoyed, speechless, uh, before she could get any words out, Peter looked at Jesus and said, Lord, what, what are you talking about? You're being virtually crushed by a crowd of people. What do you mean who touched you? Who hasn't touched you? And Jesus said, Peter, that's not what I'm talking about. Someone touched me. I felt power go out for me. And the woman knew. She knew exactly what he was talking about. And so finally, trembling with joy and, and intimidation, a little bit of anxiety, she stepped forward and said, Lord, it was me. And she told him about her long journey, 12 years struggling with the loneliness, struggling with the fear and the disappointment. She told him how she had come to believe that only he could heal her. She told him how when she had touched just the hem of his robe, the bleeding after 12 years had stopped at once. And Jesus, beaming at her, said, My daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Jairus, meanwhile, is losing his mind because... Touching story and all, and he's happy for her. He's sure this was very inconvenient for the last 12 years, but it wasn't mortal. His daughter is dying. Every second counts. Why is Jesus stopping to have a conversation right now? Can't he circle back to her later? And just as he's about to make some of these suggestions, his stomach drops because he sees a messenger from his household heading toward him, and he knows There's only one reason they would be coming for him right now. And when the messenger reaches him, his worst fears are confirmed as he finds out that it's too late. His daughter has died. And the messenger says, Just stop wasting Jesus' time. There's nothing anyone can do for her now. But Jesus hears this message too. And he looks straight at Jairus and he says, Do not be afraid. You've believed in me, keep believing in me. And Jairus, desperate, out of options, grieved, believes. And so they continue on. They finally make it to Jairus' house. And again, the mourners look at Jairus and they look at Jesus and they say, you're too late, don't waste your time, she's gone. But Jesus dismisses it. He says, no, no, no. You've misunderstood. She's not dead. She's just asleep. And the mourners laugh at Jesus, and they go, uh, we know the difference between death and sleeping, and she is not sleeping. But Jesus takes the parents up to her room anyway, and he sits down, and he takes the girl's hand, and he says, my child, get up. And immediately her spirit returned to her body, and she got up. Meanwhile, Jairus and his wife are just stunned. I mean, they're they're shocked. Their their eyes are wide, their mouth is open. They don't even know what to do with this situation. And so Jesus, laughing, looks at them and says, Hey, mom, dad, go get the girl some food. She's going to be awfully hungry. It's a great story. I wanted to tell it for you because this is a story. Packed with tension and with drama and with emotion and power, Uh, if you ask me, it would make a great short film. Unlike the previous story, most boring exorcism of all time, this one has everything you or Hollywood could ever want. And, in addition to that, it's universally relatable. Illness and death have always been and continue to be sources of great fear And so, what I want to ask now, with this story behind us and all three of them in view, is what do these three tell us together about Jesus' identity and ministry? Where does the evidence point? I want to suggest to you that there are two major lessons uh, or applications for us this morning. First, faith, quite clearly, is the necessary and appropriate response to Jesus and his ministry. The story of the woman with the bleeding illness, I think, seems at first odd to us because it looks as though, at first glance, that Jesus has healed her unintentionally. Like Jesus is some sort of power outlet or live wire, right? All you've got to do is make contact, and the power just flows mindlessly from him to her. But if we look, a closer examination shows this to be wrong. After all, when it happens, Jesus stops right away, And he asks, who touched me? Peter, as we can always count on Peter to do, Peter raises the obvious objection. He says, that's a crazy question to ask right now. You're being touched by everyone. To which Jesus responds, that's not what I'm talking about, right? His intention might have been opaque to Peter and to the rest of the crowds, but the woman he was talking to knew exactly what he was talking about. Though many had surely touched him, only one had their petition granted, the one who came to him in faith, which Jesus stops to make perfectly clear. We don't know exactly how or what she had heard about Jesus. What we do know is that what distinguished her from the rest is that she believed. She came to Jesus desperate, but also trusting, believing that Jesus could heal her. And he did. Jesus singles her out then not to embarrass her, but to make clear that what she had received was not an accident. It was not a mindless flow of power, but the intentional act of a God who saw her, who loved her, And who had chosen to heal her. She was healed. Interestingly, the word, the Greek word that Luke uses here is is literally saved. She was saved because, unlike so many others, she had put her faith in Jesus to do it. The lesson is that for those who see and hear and hear of Jesus then and today, The proper response is faith. It's to believe. It's to give your allegiance to him. This is the only response that brings healing and salvation. The second lesson on faith is equally important, and that is that the object of our faith is more important than its size. This I think we can see pretty clearly from the story of Jairus, Jairus has some faith, that's for certain. That's why he comes to Jesus in the first place, right? He comes to Jesus because he believes that Jesus can heal his daughter. But when he hears that his daughter has died, his faith seems like it it may either reach its limit or near its limit. And who can blame him, right? I think we can all agree that healing an illness is one thing, reversing death, is something totally different. But what does Jesus do? Does he rebuke Jairus for his little faith? Does he just turn around and leave him to his grief as the messenger suggests? Nope. Seeing that Jairus' faith is teetering, seeing that it's maybe small in this moment, he doesn't quench it, Jesus leans in and he nurtures it. He grows it. He looks at Jairus and he says, don't be afraid. You've believed. Keep believing. And Jairus does. He too responds to Jesus in faith. Less faith, maybe, than Jesus deserves. But even this little faith proves to be enough because he has placed it in the right person. A little faith in Jesus is by far better than great faith in anyone else. This next Sunday, in case you don't know, is the Super Bowl. And it is uh, a matter of great personal frustration and disappointment to me that Tom Brady is once again one of the starting quarterbacks I have nothing against him personally. Seems like a nice guy. Uh, You know, seems to be a good family man. I'm just tired of him, okay? Uh, He has been a starting quarterback in the NFL for 20 years, and this will be his 10th Super Bowl. Let that sink in for a second. What that means, disappointingly for the rest of us, is that over the last 20 years, a lot of fans have put a lot of faith in a lot of other quarterbacks And almost all of us would have been much better served by putting just a little bit of faith in Tom Brady, 10 Super Bowls in 20 years. Because you see, it turns out that in the NFL, just like in life, the object of your faith is more important than its size. I think this lesson is especially important because like Jarius, there are going to be times when all of us struggle to give Jesus the trust and faith that we know that he deserves. Perhaps that moment comes as we're facing a frightening illness, or even as we face death. Perhaps it comes as we face some relentless temptation, some temptation we just cannot seem to escape or get on top of. Or maybe... It comes as we confront a massive life decision and we just don't know which way to go and we just wish there was a clearer sign. In all those times, it can be difficult to muster the kind of faith in Jesus that we know that he deserves. Some of you, I know, are there right now, struggling to find faith equal to your trials. So I want you to hear the words of Jesus clearly this morning. What Jesus says is, do not be afraid, just believe in me, in me. Worry less about the size of your faith and more about where you direct it, because the object of your faith is more important than its size. As I said at the beginning, Luke has told these three stories, he's recorded them for us, in order to make a case that Jesus is who he claimed to be. They are three pieces of evidence that I think point powerfully toward Jesus' identity. Jesus has dominion. And by the way, I know that's an old word, but I used it on purpose, because it's not just power, okay? It's not like Jesus is the Hulk, he's just got lots and lots of power He has dominion. He has rightful authority over nature. Not just power over it, but he has the rightful authority over nature, over the forces of evil, over illness and even death. And all that is from less than one chapter, right? Luke's not yet done building his case. There's going to be more to come. But already I think we can see where it's going, those who will want to claim that Jesus is only a man, just a great teacher, just a prophet, are going to have to reckon with these stories and with this evidence. They're going to have to explain from where exactly does Jesus get this broad authority. Oddly enough, within our, our passage today, we get our clearest answer to that question from the mouth of the demon possessed man, who, when he sees Jesus, says, Jesus, Son of the Most High God. What do you want from me? Jesus is the Son of the Most High God. And as Luke will go on to show, he does have rightful authority, dominion over all creation. He is Yahweh, come in person to restore and save his people. And here then is where our, last two, our two lessons intersect with Luke's larger point about Jesus' identity. You see, Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, and he is the only one who can save. He is therefore the only one worthy of our full faith and trust. He alone is the rightful object of our faith. Would you bow with me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, we, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for the way that Luke has so carefully recorded and organized these stories about Jesus so that we too might get to participate. We thank you for the chance that we have to get to take a look at what Jesus did, at what he said, and at how his contemporaries responded to him. We thank you that in your word we have reliable evidence that we can evaluate for ourselves evidence that points so clearly to the identity of Jesus as your son, as the Messiah, as Emmanuel, God with us. I pray, Father, that as we are reminded of those truths this morning, that you might help us to examine our own lives and our own hearts, to examine where we put our faith and trust, and I pray, God, that where we need to, you would help us to reorient ourselves so that our faith is directed at the proper object, at the only one who is worthy and the only one who can save, Jesus Christ. In your name we pray, amen.